Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today, we hear from former CBC exec and Bristow Global Media Chief Executive Julie Bristow about her new investment vehicle focused on promoting female stories and storytellers. And Warehouse 51 Productions West One International founder Carl Hall considers how the pandemic has shaken up the distribution business. Former CBC exec and Bristow Global Media Chief Executive Julie Bristow resurfaced recently with a new development and investment vehicle focusing on female stories and storytellers. The Content Catalyst Fund aims to finance and develop unscripted and scripted content, helping female creators find an audience for their work. Bristow spoke with Clive Whittingham about the venture, which is based in Canada but has an international reach and ambitions to work with women all over the world. It's really exciting to be able to talk about a new venture that I've just recently launched. It's called the Content Catalyst Fund, and I'm the founder, which is an exciting place to be. I guess I've now joined the club of what we would all call serial entrepreneurs. I had a a production company called Bristow Global Media after leaving the CBC, having been in charge of all the unscripted content. I started a production company. Uh, I sold that company about three years ago and got through my earnout period and then decided that there was other things that were calling on my attention and this was one of them. So I'm super excited to be at the beginning of something new and I've had a great response to it so far. We're still in the early days, but having the opportunity to talk to you about it and, and anybody else who's out there that we may be able to partner with and participate with, I'm thrilled to have the chance. Give us the boilerplate uh, of this new venture. What uh, What is it? What does it do? The con- Content Catalyst Fund is intended to catalyze stories made by, for, and about women and get them into the marketplace to audiences, hopefully in a very sort of unique value proposition, speed to marketplace kind of infrastructure where we support creators from the development process, really from the creation of an idea right through to the monetization of that content and everything in between. So the idea really is about putting a business infrastructure and overlay onto promising commercial ideas so that they can get to the marketplace. And there's not a point along the continuum of getting from idea to sale where a good idea will slip through the cracks. And I think that I'm excited about this because as a female entrepreneur in the media space myself, I saw that there was a need for this and I hear that there is a need for this. So, you know, as good entrepreneurs tend to do, you answer you answer the needs or the problems in the marketplace. And that's what I hope we're doing with the CCF. What problem are we trying to, to fix here? You say, anecdotally, you've been, you've been told that there is a, an issue here with, with projects falling through the, the cracks, clearly. I mean, what what is the problem you know i think like so many businesses you know and the and the and the the numbers certainly support this the number of businesses and i certainly found that when i was the head of a production company a female founded and also female driven production company that we became a place for women who wanted an alternative place to bring their ideas and that was really part of the motivation for this because i felt that that the traditional structures the status quo wasn't necessarily supportive of the way female creators wanted to work the way they wanted to do 
their business. So it started an idea in my head that there is an opportunity here to partner in a different way than maybe some of the ways that people have been partnering before. And I think the other idea about the CCF is that we're really, really focused on development and the creation of original IP. So the other problem I saw in the marketplace being a traditional production company is that what happens when you get into production with some big projects or even some small projects is that the entire energy of the organization or the company goes into actually getting those productions up into marketplace. And the development and the focus on IP, sourcing IP and developing IP really at points becomes very secondary. And as many producers, after you've done a couple of big projects, you sort of pop your head up and you realize that you haven't been paying attention to your development funnel, to your creation of content. So really, we're super focused on creating a funnel of great ideas, really developing those ideas so they're pitch ready and market ready. And then, as I say, putting support at strategic points along the continuum of getting a series to market. There's the development, there's the financing, there's the pitching, there's the negotiation of rights. So all of those pieces of the puzzle will be buttressed essentially by the infrastructure and the content catalyst fund. So you're not just providing uh, not just providing money and seed funding, you can bring a bit of expertise and, and infrastructure as, as well to the table. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really a mix between bringing influence, bringing access to capital, bringing influence to relationships, bringing this sort of sophisticated, strategic approach to ensuring that these projects get to market. We're, this is a mission-driven for-profit business. So we will really be looking at commercially-driven projects particularly at the beginning, we're looking at unscripted because that's predominantly my background. Scripted will come later. But the the notion also that the unscripted marketplace right now is more COVID-friendly than the scripted marketplace. So we're really starting with a strategic funnel on unscripted content. And in fact, we already have a slate of 25 market-ready projects that we've been developing for the last seven months. So we're kind of well underway with this. It's not something that's just starting today. If I'm a producer listening to this, wondering whether my project might qualify or fit? What are the sort of tick boxes that you guys look for in projects? This inevitably will evolve, but the starting point is commercially driven, unscripted content series, you know, that can essentially fit the speed to market premise of being able to get an idea to an audience in the shortest amount of time. Because I think particularly with unscripted content, there's a speed to market advantage of making sure that every kind of pillar along the way for an idea that's supported will likely find its way to a marketplace quicker and be more successful. And obviously at the beginning of a of a venture like this, we want to be able to show early success. So that's what we're looking for at the moment. How is it all funded? Where where's the where's the money coming from? The early seed stage funding is coming from myself and like-minded mission-driven investors. We are continuing to raise, so this is not a closed fund at the moment. The more money that we can put into the fund, the more projects we can support. You know, the ideal is to start with a focus on the development funnel, which we've just been talking about. But ultimately, and ideally, we'd like to take equity positions in projects as well. So the notion will be that that's as the fund grows, we'll focus on both of those things at the same time. Hope the goal is that within the first year, we'll be making um, some small equity investments in projects. Why do this rather than, say, launch another production company? What, What drove you in this direction? The things really that I talked about at the beginning, 
I think, you know, two things, looking at the marketplace and saying there is definitely, it's always struck me as odd that the majority of viewers for the kind of content that we make, leaving out news and sports is predominantly female. And so, you know, that is the market for the content. And I think that there isn't the aperture for looking through content of female lens is not as big as it needs to be. So I think there's an opportunity in the marketplace to have a unique value proposition of saying we're really looking for that female lens. You know, Reese Witherspoon examples like that with Hello Sunshine and how powerful that company has been. You know, there's a little bit of that and the inspiration of this because at the end of the day, you know, taking it on yourself and saying, okay, this is what we're going to focus on. It doesn't mean that we're not working with men. I want to make that quite clear. I mean, in some cases, we've got projects that have two partners at the at the lead of it, but it was brought in by a woman. So I think ultimately what we're trying to do is just ensure that there is a female lens on the projects. And so that to me is, is unique. It's a unique value proposition in the marketplace. And the other thing is the really intense focus on curating and sourcing original IP and developing original IP and really spending the time on that part of the process, which I think ultimately is so much more important for the success of a project and not getting sort of weighed down in the day-to-day weight of, you know, ongoing production. And so I think when the pandemic sort of happened and I was already thinking about this, I have to say that it kind of deepened my commitment to the idea because so much of what's happened as well, just globally, is, you know, the statistics here about women in the workforce, I mean, it's at a 30-year low, which is stark, you know, and also the access to capital if we look at, you know, statistics around venture capital, 4% of, you know, the money that gets uh, given out for projects or women in business is so small, less for women of color, that I really feel that part of what we don't talk about enough in our industry is the money side of it, the business side of it, and how we have to get access to that to make sure that the great projects that are out there get made. Diversity has been, apart from the pandemic, the big talking point in the industry in 2020. Previously, I've kind of felt like television was maybe paying lip service when it started talking about diversity. 2020 feels a little bit different to me as someone covering the industry there is genuine movement for change now do you see that or is there a risk of it being lip service again no i think there's real change i mean i'm i'm really grateful for the focus on this at the moment and i'm also grateful that i'm in the position to start something which means i can build and we will build diversity and inclusion into the dna of the ccf i mean I, we, you know the most important thing is at the point where you're starting something you know you have the opportunity to build it differently you know i keep saying as many other people do. I think we have an opportunity to build back better with, you know, some of the things that we're building at the moment and to be focused on diversity and inclusion, I think is incredibly important. So, you know, another thing that we've been focused on during the pandemic, and certainly I have been focused on during the pandemic is growing my network of BIPOC, um, you know, creators in this country and in the world, really, to ensure that, you know, women of color are properly represented with their ideas in this new venture. And so I again I, I I feel grateful that during this time when there's been a lot of focus on a really critical and important issue, that we will have the opportunity to build that in from the beginning and we won't have to retrofit something that's already there. So that I'm excited about. And uh, you know, it's it's critically important, just like the inclusion of women, the female lens, we we we're just assuming that female lens includes women of color. Quite timely in that respect, the launch of this, but obviously anything launching at the moment in the 
midst of a pandemic with lockdowns and production shutdowns and everything else we know about facing television brings its own challenges. What are the challenges of launching a venture like this in these difficult times? It's really a double-edged sword in the sense that because we're so focused on development at the moment, it's a good place to be as opposed to lifting productions because as we know, it's difficult right now. There's a lot of stop and start in terms of being out in the field. So I think that we're in a good place to build up slates of content that will be ready to be pitched and to be partnered with so that when production you know, we don't want to say goes back to normal because normal seems like such a strange world. But when production starts to increase as it is in certain places, we'll be we'll be right ready to do that. I think for me, what's challenging about this is just the inability really to meet with people face to face, especially when you're doing something that's a little bit different and new. And, you know, it's great to be able to speak to people about it in the way we're speaking about it. But there is always something that you miss by being, you know, in front of people. MIP, for example, we were talking about, I mean, these are the kinds of forums and these are the kinds of places that we get energized by talking about new ideas and we attract other people to it, strategic partners or investors or any of the types of folks that we meet in these kinds of forums or meet face-to-face when we travel that really make hopefully a good idea a heck of a lot better. So I think that's what everybody's facing. You know, it's really hard to pitch yourself, to pitch a new idea, to pitch ideas. We're doing it and we're, you know, we're doing it pretty well, all of us. We've adapted fairly well, but there's some magic and momentum missing when we can't be together face-to-face. How are you getting around that and how can people who might be interested in hooking up and working with you guys how do they get in touch? Well, it's just announcing, I would say just announcing this initiative, I was overwhelmed by the reaction. So that is good, you know, from creators all over the world with projects, with a need to look for other ways of working and getting their projects supported. So, you know, it's only been three weeks, but there has been a landslide of creators all over the world, as I say, that have been coming in about projects. And that's great. And with really sort of positive feedback for what we're doing here. I think the other thing that's been very interesting is I've heard from all kinds of different media companies believing in the mission, you know, understanding that this is a profit-driven business, but also believing in the mission and, and wanting to discuss ways of, of working together. So that's also been really great in terms of, you know, ideas that, that can come together for partnerships and people obviously also wanting to know if they can invest, when they can invest, what does that whole funnel look like? So I guess we're talking, I'm talking to a lot of creators at the moment. I'm talking to prospective investors and I'm also talking to uh, strategic partners. So that's been great. I mean, this kind of thing, talking to you and, and and getting the word out about this will be will be hugely important. Most people have been contacting us through the website because we've got I've got a small team of content curators and developers who are working on the content with me and I've, I've got a head of finance who's working on the business with me. So so you know and all, many other ways. I mean obviously people use LinkedIn and all kinds of other ways to get in touch. But you know we're still in the media business obviously so all of those kinds of relationships are still there and you know we just work on keeping them up and ensuring that people have access and knowledge about what we're up to. And I presume it's it's for projects from anywhere in the in the world, right? There's no geographic uh, restriction. No, there isn't. And I think that that's, you know, really important. I've always tried to have a what I call a, you know, a global business that's proudly domestic, 
you know, Canada is a great place to be based, but we're always looking, you know, we'll start with every project to say, okay, can this sell in the world? I mean, I think that's really important and that, you know, in, in our business, it has to be a global business and great ideas are coming from everywhere. So that's the excitement of it really is just the opportunity to say where are the best ideas and how do we support them in the way we know how we want to be supported essentially. Does the company retain a rights position in projects it invests in? I mean, you mentioned, I think the aim is to, to have equity stake moving forward, but do you get a stake in the in the back end of, of these projects or how, how, do, how do you get paid in the end if you see what I mean? That is one way for sure. The monetization or the business model for the content catalyst fund is in partnership with the creator, first of all, to protect their rights in a meaningful way. Because I have to say that I have seen a lot of women have come to me and said that they have not felt that their rights were protected in deals that they've done in more traditional sort of structures. So protecting the rights will be really important, but there will be a sharing through that process in terms of back end, in terms of fees, that kind of thing. I think that the amount of value that the CCF will put into partnering with creators will be unique and the value will be, you know, I think over time as we execute on projects, people will come to understand that this will be a very good way to get your projects made. With your broadcaster background, I'm sure you, you recognize the situation at the minute where co-productions and getting funding from elsewhere presumably is going to be very important in 2021 because we know about the ad market and everything that's come with this pandemic. Financing is going to be the big theme of 2021, isn't it? Trying to get your productions financed. I think that, and that will be definitely part of the, the proposition of the CCF. I mean, at the end of the day, figuring out ways to finance good ideas is not nearly as straightforward as it has been in the past. I mean, we can't just look at a single commissioning entity or tax credits in a territory. We have to look at all of it. We have to look at how brands might want to be involved. So I think that, again, there is an opportunity because at the moment, we don't have a business model that's established in the sense that we have the opportunity really to say, how else can we finance something? How else can we finance it? How can we support it? How can we bring multiple territories to it? So, you know, what's exciting about our business is that everything's changing, which is can also be frightening and scary. But the positive side of that is that there's opportunities to say, how can we do business differently? So I think financing is so much part of that. And what we have to do is be able to get out of the mindset of thinking that there's only one or two ways of financing content and find other ways and other partnerships and, you know, other like-minded people that want to be invested in a good idea. Julie Bristow. Carl Hall was founder of Parthenon Entertainment before selling the business to Sky in 2012 to form the basis of its own distribution division, which he spearheaded before stepping down a year later and returning to independent production with a company called Warehouse 51. The business subsequently branched out into distribution with the launch of West One International and following the UK Satcaster's recent debut of a new Sky Nature channel, Hall has found himself once again selling wildlife documentaries back to his former employer. He spoke with Clive Whittingham about how his companies navigated the pandemic and the situation has shaken up the distribution business amid a decimated event circuit. Uh, my name's uh, Carl Hall. Um, I run a distribution company called West One International. Uh, formerly in my past, I ran Parthenon Entertainment, which later became Sky Vision after um, Sky purchased it. So I've had, I think this is my 35th year in television. And <laughs> what an interesting year it's been. Um, I also have a production company called Warehouse 51 Productions, which has been producing 
during the lockdown period and uh, has got some big plans for next year as well. So I'm an inter- I've got that interesting sight of both production and distribution as well. Obviously, people will know you from, from your, your former companies. Can you just tell us a bit about the two sides of your new company, sort of programmes you're involved with? Um, so when I, when I um, came out of Sky Vision, um, I actually wasn't allowed to go back into distribution for a while. So it was a very interesting time. So um, we produ- I produced some uh, pretty big shows for, for Discovery and uh, National Geographic during that period, including, uh, I think we made one about the inside uh, area 51 in conjunction with the um, CIA in that period. And it, it, was, it was interesting because obviously, instead of just distributing out myself, it's the first time I'd actually had my product out there with the world's distributors. And I literally spread it around, you know, just to make sure that I, I got a good feeling. Um, well, <laughs> it was whoever's paying the biggest advances, to be honest. But the um, but it, they were nice and spread around. So it, it, it gave you a good idea of what it was like out there. But what I noticed, and I think this is what I brought to the new company, is that as a producer, if you're one step away from actually talking to the um, broadcasters, it's extremely difficult to get in that mindset of what the market needs. And obviously, one of the things that you need as a producer is to know why things got rejected, or if in fact, they love it, what they loved about it, so that if we're doing a second series or planning more shows in that vein. So you were cut off really from the mainstream of the business. And I thought as a, both for myself and the producers that I work with, what I, what I needed to do is just knit those, those two together. So when we've been doing pitches, I've also done them with the producers as well. So I, I'm not, there's no wall between us and, you know, we're not worried about them hearing about what the license fee are. You know, we haven't got the kind of paranoia that, that I think uh, distribution sometimes breeds in terms of, no, I don't, we don't want you to know the contacts and I don't, we don't know what the, the, the price per hour. We don't care. We just try to get as much money for the producers. And as we're on a, produ- on a percentage of that, that's always kind of worked out very nicely. So it's a much more um, bespoke service in a way because we're in the head of what it's like to be a producer. We're not in the head of just, uh, I mean, the other biggest distributors that have probably got more money and, you know, with large glo- gro- global reaches and things like that. But I always think about this in, in terms of if you've ever had anything in one of their catalogs, what happened to it the year later when you're just packaged with everybody else? There's no no attention to detail. And these days, and I think what COVID shown is that back catalogue is um, worth a lot more these days, and especially if it's a timeless pieces. And that's why, I, I, you know, as a distributor and a producer as well, we've always stuck with documentaries and with children's programmes as well, because children's uh, obviously has a new um, group of kids coming up every three years. Years. And obviously with documentaries, there is a huge gap for those all around the world and they fit very nicely when, uh, especially now COVID's been uh, affecting, if you're swapping out a show that, that was originally a big drama or something like that and you're waiting for the next season, really documentaries sometimes fit very nicely in that because it's got the same quality perception, but um, obviously is more co-viewing as well, hopefully, along there. The, the only exception with that being crime, really, uh, because that's become very polarised. So uh, we're, we're you know um, we do do crime but we just do the historical end of it we don't do the sort of you know the discovery type id type shows because they're, they're well covered by other people let's take the production side first how has that been uh, in 2020 what was the picture at the start of the year how have you got through and where are you now well we were halfway through filming the drama sections when the curtain dropped and we and we ended up having to stop 
and I think there was probably another two weeks of filming and then we would have had everything in the bag. And so obviously what it meant then is that we were left with uh, unable to finish the shows for another almost five months. But um, the first three programmes in the series we managed to finish and the other three now we've immediately gone back into production. But nobody realises, you know, during when you close, you can't just close a production company down. There's so many run costs, you know, just the cost of paying the you know for the equipment. With uh, COVID as well, we couldn't return any of the edit suites. We couldn't return any of the costumes. The whole place was just full of other people's things. And some people uh, unkindly tried to charge for those as well. Others were very nice. Um, and, you know, you do really find out the, what people are like. <laughs> in these situations uh, and that ranges from staff and freelancers and outside companies but um, everybody I would say 90% of the people we work with and outside we've all really got a kind of wartime spirit on and, and work through it and to be honest I, I think in production terms you know the whole workflow has changed and for the better and actually I think the programs haven't suffered too much um, we've, we've taken to uh, rather than just sending a crew out to uh, film somebody for an interview we do a pre-interview with them zoom and we then then give them basically the note, their own notes back for when the actual crew so we're finding that the the, the interviews are much richer because we're we're already focused them into the cut rather than sort of trying to then think oh god i wish i got them to talk about this or there's a new uh, fact that's just come on the scene and can we include that now in the in the interview so so i actually think from one from one point it actually works and also it means the smaller crews we're finding are quicker and faster at getting things done but in in terms of other people as well, I mean, I, I think we've been lucky. I, I, I you know, um, obviously we make a lot of wildlife films. One thing about wildlife has been um, interesting is is once people get into the field, you know, for the for the big shows, it's actually the perfect place to shelter. You know, I mean, you're not you, you know you're not exposed. Um, when we're doing the um, the um, uh, the risk assessments, it's almost always the the period of travelling and you know the airport to the location. After that, it drops off because you know after a couple of weeks, as long as they, you know, they're not. Mean mingling with the public you've got a great clear vista and what's really interesting is the wildlife is there's so few tourists going that the wildlife behavior is a lot easier because you're not having to weave your way around people being there during the day or, or disturbing animals um, you know behavior so actually some, some pretty amazing stuff's come out of it you know when we're not around it does it all all the restrictions the quarantining the social distancing the ppe and everything else what sort of time and added cost is that oh. adding to production it's doubling the, the period it takes to get things done. Well, it is unless you plan it. So we're at the moment, when we've been casting for the second uh, part of the series, we've been casting people who are in social groups. So if there's any interaction, these people are wives and uh, daughters or in a, in a, in a social bubble. Um, we have had to, for example, if there are two people in the car and they know each other, but the cameraman's got to get in, in there with them, we've actually got them in the full um, gas mask and you know biological warfare outfit almost. But the, the cost is prohibitive. And I, I think you know the, the cancellation costs and furlough uh, costs and nobody really explains to you that you also have to pay holiday pay so, so we had people who were on BAYE that, that basically had to pay their holiday pay and they only worked for us for a week but there they are you know for months on end, you know and they actually end up earning more on furlough than they did when they were working that short period so it was it was a difficult time but what we're trying to do is just um, we're hoping the new insurance uh, that, that's, that the government's producing at the moment will, will definitely help out on that but it, again it makes you creative there's been a lot 
of forums with Directors UK and uh, PACT and people. And it's very, very, very useful, the BFI, in terms of sharing experiences and, and getting this down to a fine art in terms of when we are filming to try and keep it as, as swift as possible. Numbers don't look good in the US or the UK at the moment. What would a second lockdown of any sort of seriousness effect have on your business and production in general? This is where... Uh, to be quite honest, I'm so glad that we're a, we're a distributor as well because it has actually been one of the best years. You know, we we started a, um, a couple of years ago, and and I just wanted a slow start. I didn't want to put uh, you know do a big brash uh, opening onto the business. I just wanted to to build up the business, and I think in the last last six months we've done I would say 90% of all the business that we've done since the start of the company, and it's very and the, and the license fees have been good. And what what I've been really shocked at really is broadcasters don't seem to be lowballing the moment when they're buying something it is for the pre-agreed rate and i think i mean there everybody's compromised obviously out there who relies on advertising um, because obviously those revenues haven't been there but if you think about the lead-in times and and the amount of um, stock they've got through i think one of the people who've done well talking to uh, broadcasters all over are the, are their internal reversioning so the number of people who are just taking shows off this off, the, off their own shelves and chopping them around and putting them back out again it's good but that that will stop and i think i think by february um programs that have been in production and have actually made it through are going to be much more valuable and we're seeing definitely now um people moving much faster on deals rather than let you know the potential of letting anything go if you've got good quality shows so with us um the wildlife shows have done very very well in that period because it, it seems to be a nice escapist form of um programming the disaster movie ones didn't do well at the beginning, but weirdly are doing very well now. So I don't know whether people got a second wave of human destruction, you know, bring it on. It was another theory that it was a good time to be a distributor because obviously there's huge gaps in schedules and finished tape is, is very useful for that and valuable. It does sound like that's been the case so far. Will it continue to be the case? I think there's probably going to be a bit of a feeding frenzy from distributors in the early part of next year, you know, just because of the limited amount of production that's coming out of the world. And, you know, there was a, a string of productions that came through that had sort of the COVID look, as it were, you know, they dropped in, you know, Zoom in interviews and all that kind of stuff. You know, that, that sort of show is never going to work. That's never going to be valuable around the world after. So I think everybody's got sensible to say that, you know, if you're going to make it, you've got to make it properly and it's got to look, you know, exactly the same quality and it's not going to look like it was made in lockdown. But of course, you know, we are lucky in documentaries because obviously there's a lot of stock you can fall back on. We're, we're a little easier, I think, because we're not dealing with stars and we're not dealing with, um, you know, the actors don't tend to be um, named people in these things. Uh, you know, it's easier to cast in social groups and, and keep things going. But I think the early part of next year, definitely there's going to be a shortage of programme for distributors as well to pass on to to others. So even if once they're mining their, uh, their back catalogue, it's amazing how picky you broadcasters still are you know in terms of uh, what they want and uh, I, I should imagine now it's you know with the Christmas schedule on it's going to use a lot of programming up you know so if there's anything being made it will be going out then so I think it's going to be slim pickings in from January uh, onwards but obviously that's where you know the Netflixes and the Disneys have all gone back into production now will be hopefully you know the Mandalorians and all that sort of stuff will be re-emerging then so so I think we'll, we'll all just be switching back to VOD again which is dangerous because if, the, if there's 
another dip in advertising revenue, I think that's really going to be very hard for broadcasters globally to have the confidence in budgets to spend as they have. I mean, I, I do feel that at the moment there's a little bit of an upsurge in confidence that we're going to get through this and let's stick some money down because if we're going to get advertisers back, we need quality programming. And I think that's happening. But just a prolonged second lockdown uh, anywhere would definitely compromise that. But um, let's let's hope, hope that doesn't happen. It can just be a regional or localised thing. Distributors have spent this year like flogging back catalogue, but once you've sold it once, it's sold right. And there might be this shortage of new productions, as, as we've discussed, exacerbated by a second lockdown. How would the industry look and cope and get around that in 2021? One of the things I've noticed is that there's a lot of uh, distributor cooperation. So so we've, we've talked to people who, who have got things like output deals to fill and you know they're short and what have we got and stri- struck a few deals. And they're almost impossible thought a year or so ago so I, I you know i do think there is a wartime mentality i mean there's there's really two two groups of people in the industry now those are making for the big uh you know vault companies and they've got that sort of security and then there's the rest of us who supply you know all the all the rest of the broadcasters around the world which there are a lot and there's a lot of new ott services in asia and things like so it's never as bad as it really seems i just it's all about confidence really but broadcasters are usually fairly robust i mean they've all got rid of their upper management it, 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 I, I definitely think that, that you know the cost cutting is going to going to be useful to their longevity as well because it's it's probably uh, an industry that is a little bit management top heavy but um, uh, at the moment I think uh, there's also interesting moves the American uh, broadcasters is definitely uh, a flow now for them not to wholly own things which gives us a great opportunity now because you know that all that product would have normally been lost to the American distribution setup because they've taken all rights is going to find its way onto the market so actually Actually, I think uh, for the smaller companies like mine, this could be a really good time that actually we can start doing co- uh, co-productions. I, I mean, it's something that I've always always done from the beginning. I've, I much prefer to divide and conquer and, and get the money from various places so that we keep some of those rights because that's you know very much useful in times like this when we've got the dusted them off and got them out there again. But um, I do think there is going to be a seismic shift, and of course that's probably always going to happen because because they, they polarise so much into uh, you know with all the different amalgamations. I mean, you generally find that, that those companies, they do more business, but they don't do proportionally 50% more or whatever when they've made a huge acquisition like that, just for them, just the fact that you know, their own product takes precedent over any third party stuff. So I do think there's going to be a leaching out. And I think uh, new, new distribution companies like Paul Heaney's one, he's just starting up and all these smaller ones, it's like the evolution that always goes and, and like mine, is that we, we're there to sort of catch the raindrops, you know, from the, from the leaky bucket above because you can't possibly... Possibly, uh, the bigger companies can't give producers the attention they want. Let's talk about uh, the event circuit. How has 2020 been without the event circuit for you more as a distributor I guess but a producer as well because you'd be there pitching I mean how has it been well let's be really honest with it It, it's working really well and I've got to say some of the calls we get are so much more personal with on a one-to-one you're not in that noisy I mean let's face it you usually get 15 minutes with any broadcaster and you know they've just come back from lunch or whatever and they've been bombarded and it must blur in their mind here we are they're sitting in their front rooms and you've got 15 minutes minutes now of their undivided attention I think it's it's definitely better pitching like this I mean obviously it's lovely especially with a new buyer or something you don't know or to actually meet them face to face and but to be honest it's proved that business can be done and I've got, I've got to say that it's um, it's quite intense
friends as well, you know, especially deal making face to face with the people that you sometimes have never really seen. You know, if you, when they bring their lawyer in on, on the call, you're looking at this thinking, oh my God, it's like trial by, by Zoom. But um, in fact, I think in a way though, it moves things along really quickly. And I, I felt that you can go, well, you know, can we get that draft out in a couple of days? Or, or so, so actually, there's something good. I mean, you're never going to get the lawyer or, or, or the, or the program scheduler or any of that down to can. And they're on these, some of these calls, you know. But of course, we do, we all join this industry because we love the people and, um, and we do, and we do miss it. But that's going to be the reward for us at the end of this, you know, when hopefully by the end of next year, things start to go back to normal. And I, I think, you know, it, it will make us appreciate more the value of these trips. Carl Hall. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast next week. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. 